Welcome to Radical Resilience, the podcast. I'm your host, Pega Kadkodian. Resilience is more than just learning to bounce back from adversity. It is both a spiritual and practical journey of returning to the essence of who you are. With Radical Resilience, life can throw anything at you, and no matter how tossed around you get, no matter how hard you fall, you have the ability to get back up and come home to yourself. Hear the inspirational stories of women who embody radical resilience and learn the resources you need to reclaim your passion, purpose, and power. Aloha and welcome everybody to Radical Resilience, the podcast. It's so great to be back with you all after taking a much needed break this summer to just regroup and recalibrate. And I got to tell you, I'm so excited about our first guest back in this new season, someone I became acquainted with. We happened upon each other via social media channels, a fellow resilience sister, and her story is amazing. And I'm, I'm so excited to share her incredible gifts with all of you. I'm so pleased to introduce you to Dr. Gail Gazelle. It's really a pleasure, Pekka. Thanks for having me on. She's an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School, a certified mindfulness teacher, a survivor of childhood abuse with an amazing story of resilience herself, and she really knows it inside and out. And what I love about her was she wanted me to share her background and her bio with you to really demonstrate that even people who we think, you know, have it all together, and there is a story of resilience here to share. Yeah, we all have our own journey, don't we? <laughs> Yeah, I'll kind of jump around a little bit because I've spent most of my career as a hospice physician and I I knew I was called to work in hospice, but I never really fully understood why because I hadn't seen premature deaths or you know, I didn't I didn't have a lot of hands-on experience with death and dying, but I knew that I was called to be a hospice physician. So, then to jump back into the past, well, I grew up outside of New York City in a middle-class family, um, no alcohol, no drugs, well-educated parents, a lot of emphasis on education and achievement. Um, I was a really talented piano player. I did well in school. And along the way, though, there were areas where I wasn't really doing so well. I wasn't doing so well in close relationships. I didn't really know why, <laughs> but certainly intimate relationships. I was very much kind of keep things at arm's length. And um, I really felt like crap about myself, to be quite honest. I had a lot of shame. Didn't think I looked right. I didn't think I talked well. I didn't think I walked normally. And But on I trotted. And it was only um, when I finished my medical training. So I went to medical school. I did the three years of residency, which is a really intense time. You know, you're up at that time. We were up every third night. Every fourth night was a luxury. We we're on call on the weekends. You know, we were totally sleep deprived. So, but I got through all that. And when I finished my residency, I started to remember what actually had happened in my childhood in this house that looked perfectly normal on the outside. And it was almost like once the lid came off, it was kind of amazing what was under there because there had been a lot of abuse that I had no memory of. It's really a true case of repressed memories. And I had learned to cope by being a good soldier. I was at least in a family that valued education. So it became about achieving. I kind of became a human achieving machine. Which is something so many of our listeners can relate to. And I think so many high achieving women deny 
these wounds and these aspects of themselves that really need tending to and attention. And they learn to persevere by way of achievement, just like you. I'm glad that I learned to achieve, but there was a cost to it. And so the journey has been one being with the facts, you know, because it, it kind of, again, it was like, wait a minute, is this my life? You know, it, it all came rushing out and it was so overwhelming. It had really been repressed when we kind of think about it on a neuroscience level, fight, flight, freeze, freeze. You just kind of freeze and dissociate. And I think that was how I coped. So when it came out, it was pretty intense. Those years were, you know, a lot of flashbacks, physically, mentally, emotionally. It was really something. And yet it needed to come out. It was part of my psyche. It was in there and it was keeping me from my own resilience. It was certainly keeping me from thriving, even though on the outside, things looked fine. You know, I was achieving. I was at Harvard Medical School. I had a child on my own. I was doing all these kind of, you know, big adult things, but I was really suffering inside. So it's been quite a journey. It's really been a journey of resilience. And I, I think coming back to why hospice was a calling for me, I think it was kind of the aloneness that people have near the end of life. Um, you're off somewhere, you're suffering, you're in pain. The medical profession isn't as interested in you as they might have been when you had some fascinating disease that they could get their hands on. You know, and I think that was the connection for me how isolated and alone I felt uh, as this abuse was going on. And I, I had to even separate from myself. I had to be even more isolated as I coped with it in terms of repressing it and not even knowing my own truth as it was occurring. You haven't often told your story except for in this book, which of course I, I'm really excited to, to talk about your book as well. You said something that struck me, and I wonder if you'd be willing to share that with our listeners, too, in retelling your story. I, for many years, didn't tell my story. I thought it was shameful, you know, once I even got my own story back, and that people would think less of me, that they wouldn't want me to be their doctor, for example, uh, that my son might even reject me. You know, there was so much shame that I'd internalized. And so part of the healing journey is shedding that shame, really, and reconnecting with the goodness that's inside. And so the book, Everyday Resilience, has been an opportunity for me to tell my story, to speak, not just as the high achiever, but as my real life story. And what we spoke about earlier, as I said to you, is it okay for me to name that this was sexual abuse? Because I haven't done that. This would really be the first time. And you, you know, I could see you, you almost teared up. You were so kind and inviting. And so I want to be able to share that because that's the truth. And it's not because I was bad or shameful. It's because there were wounded people. And that's the family that I arrived in. And thank you. And I'm, I'm deeply honored that this is the space <laughs> chosen to say that for the very first time out loud. That's no small thing, and I don't take that lightly. And my hope with this podcast is when incredible women like yourself come on and share their stories, that it gives other women the permission to be able to name these things and to be able to admit that they have had these experiences mm -hmm. without shame and without 
everything that, that goes along with that. You know, I myself am also a survivor of um, sexual abuse. So I know that that's not an easy thing to say out loud. So thank you. I appreciate you. When we speak to these experiences that we have, to me, it makes you that much more viable and that much more credible to speak on resilience as an expert because, you know, I always like to say my experience of resilience isn't theoretical. So true for many of us. It's a really incredible people that we think have it easy or, you know, they kind of look the part of something that we put on a pedestal or we think to ourselves, well, I'm struggling, but somebody else isn't. And the truth is that we all have struggles. It's really amazing the struggles that we can find, particularly as women, but for men as well, of course. And the more we can stay grounded in the fact that it's part of the human condition to suffer and struggle, it can decrease some of that isolation that I was talking about. Because for years, I not only felt intense shame, but I I've had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder, like nobody else has struggled in the way I have. And that just wasn't true. It was a bit of a story that also contributed to some of the distance and the difficulty being close to people because I kept myself separate. You know, my life is different. My story is different. But we all have struggles. We all do. And I, I heard someone say once, you know, the things that we're most afraid of sharing with the world are the things that are the most universal. Mm, so true, isn't it? And I thought, wow, I was really struck by that. I said, the deepest, darkest parts of ourselves that we're afraid to share, that we, you know, are, are most ashamed of are likely the things that people can go, you know what, I've had an experience like that, or I can relate to that on some level. Maybe that wasn't my exact experience, but I can relate to the byproduct of the, the emotion that resulted. I just so appreciate your willingness to be vulnerable and to share so openly. Thank you. If I may, I'd love to transition to the book. So Everyday Resilience. The book was released back in August. Get your hands on it and get to reading because it's an incredible resource. Would you share with our readers the, the six tenets of resilience that are in the book? I said readers. I meant readers and listeners because, of course, they're going to read your book. <laughs> Now, there's so many different ways to think about resilience, and they all take us to the same path. And maybe it speaks to that there are different languages that we can use, different traditions we can bring, but there's still one human being, you know. And I really like to think that resilience is a deep well that we all have within us, a well of resources that um, we can draw upon and we can replenish. And they keep us from kind of having more suffering and more setback than we need to have with the challenges that we face. That's really how I think about resilience. I love that. And, you know, I appreciate it so much in the book that you mentioned that resilience isn't like the rubber band being pulled mm -hmm. back to, you know, this idea of bouncing back, that it's yeah. so much deeper than that, because I'm in total agreement with that. Would you share your definition of resilience with our readers? Well, again, it's something that resides within all of us. It's a deep well of resources, wisdom, strength, and goodness, deep goodness that resides in each and every one of us that keeps us from kind of having an unnecessary level of distress, emotional, physical, spiritual, all of the elements of distress that we can experience. And another, another way that I think about resilience is it's how do we move things from being overwhelming to manageable? 
that's kind of the key. Like there are all these difficulties, whether it's COVID, the uncertainty about whether our children will go back to school, whether it's an illness, an accident, a toxic boss, childhood abuse, whatever it is. How can we have the tools to access that inner well of knowing so that we can manage those difficulties and again, not, not go under with them, not be overwhelmed. I love that you refer to it as that inner knowing, you know, because in my work, I refer to it as like your essential being, you know, when you have connection mm -hmm. and they're mm -hmm. one in the same really different way. Of saying yes, the same they thing. are. Your essential being, that inner wisdom, that higher aspect of yourself that is who you really are, you know, when you're not overly yes. identified with the roles you play in the world, but that inner wisdom that you have that is your essential self is the source of that resilience that we and you can return home to that you do tap into this well that you've always had and that there are tools that you can cultivate to get greater access to that i'd love it if you share with our listeners these these six tenets would you share that with us connection you know, meaningful sustaining relationships Equally important, flexibility and adaptability, the idea that it's not so much what happens to us, but it's how we adapt and how we cope with it and how we manage it, what we bring forth. So that flexibility is really key. Perseverance, the ability to keep going. You know, this is a marathon, this life that we're in. There's all kinds of challenges that we're going to face. And honestly, if 2020 didn't teach us anything else, it certainly has taught us that. Positivity because we know there's so much research now on the role of positive emotions in well-being, in mental health, in physical health. So positivity is critical. Self-regulation, which includes self-compassion, that ability to be the ally and the friend to ourselves, as opposed to kind of the harsh bullying critic that many of us learn to be. And then very important, self-care self-care, that ability to really make ourselves a priority and invest in ourselves, even if it's in a tiny way, but how to give ourselves that dose of, of, of goodness and care that we all need to keep going. It's so good. I absolutely love it. So if you could speak to, let's say, two of these pillars, you know, to our listeners right now, what in your mind would be the two pillars to really focus in on first and foremost I would say first and foremost, flexibility. We all get into very fixed ways of looking at our lives. And if we can shake that up a little bit, it's incredible what opens up. So what I do currently is that I work as an executive coach for physicians and other individuals in healthcare. And I was actually coaching somebody earlier today, Pega, who's really struggling, like many people, around the issue of school. And what's going to happen with kids? This is the year of the pandemic. So are my kids going to go back to school? Are they going to be safe? What is the school system going to do? Or, you know, this conundrum that so many parents are in. And this individual was just in a very fixed place, like the school board is doing it wrong. This is not going to be good for my kids. My kids are going to suffer. And I don't know, kind of this cannot stand. Now, that's a bit of a fixed mindset, which we all get into. And yet, coaching that client to just shift the perspective a little bit, to try on, well, what other challenges have your kids faced? And how did they come through it? And, and the client immediately said, gosh, they came through it stronger. 
you know, when I was struggling in my marriage and there was this going on and we decided to get a divorce, I never thought the kids were going to get through it, but look at them. They're even more resilient. They understand that relationships change. So that's flexibility, leaving that one way of looking at things and stepping into a more resourceful place. And honestly, I could see her shoulders drop. Her breathing became, you know, more deep. And there was just a sense of ease of like, yeah, we're going to be okay. We're going to manage this. So again, moving it from overwhelming to manageable. So that's the first one, flexibility. The second has got to be connection and relationships. You know, we're a social species and we suffer when we're on our own, all of us, even the introverts. And so we understand now that loneliness is actually a risk factor for cardiac disease. It's one of the six major risk factors up there with a sedentary lifestyle so we have to invest in our relationships. We have to learn how to repair when there are rifts. And I get into a lot of detail in that. And one thing around that's kind of a crossover between flexibility and connection, which is that in relationships, we often take things very personally. Somebody says something and we feel like, hmm, why did they say that to me? Don't they see? Or, you know, we feel hurt or we feel disrespected. Flexibility to stop and think, wow, what if this actually had nothing to do with me? What if it was 100% them? Because the go-to place is that it's us. It's because of us. The world is constructed around our own ego. And once we can begin to be flexible and question, does this really have to do with me or is it just them and their projections and their woundedness and their bad day, it's a game changer. It's a game changer for healing in those relationships and also for true resilience, because then we can come back to, I'm good, they're good, we can tap into some of the compassion as opposed to the woundedness and the threat. And we can really bring our best selves, I think, to this whole world that is really in need of healing. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and again, it's, it's such a great confirmation. I, I'm not, I don't know if you know this about me, but for a few years, I taught NLP, neurolinguistic programming. And so much of what you're speaking to is in alignment with some of the principles that I taught and I continue to teach in my coaching and the work that I do. So this idea of, um, so in NLP, it's called the presuppositions of NLP. And a presupposition is just a, a mindset principle that you can choose to take on that allows for ease in communication. It allows for better relationships and deeper connections. And it's a mindset principle that if you choose to take it on can allow for better results in your life overall. And it, and the, 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 there's a few in there that you've mentioned that are so um, in alignment with those presuppositions that the things that you've been talking about. So you talk about flexibility and that's a huge one. Now in NLP, we, it's kind of a you know jargony terminology. It's called the law of requisite variety. Oh, but idea being that when you are the more flexible individual in any scenario, that it increases your ability to um, cultivate more possibilities, right? So you're more open to uh, choices. It increases choice. And it allows you to yield a, a greater positive influence mm -hmm. you know, over the situation. So it gives you the ability to reframe as you were just speaking to in terms of your client and shift your perspective. And then you talked about your ability to make it not about you, right? So like let go of taking things personally and realize 
that everyone has, and here's where the presupposition comes in, everyone has their own model of the world. Yes. And that everyone is operating from their own model of the world, their perspectives, their programming, their baggage, their stuff, you know, and when you can step back and realize, you know, this really just doesn't have anything to do with me. You know, yeah. this this is this could just be their stuff. It's so liberating. Isn't it? It's so yeah. liberating. It's a, it's a, that's the word, isn't it? There's so much freedom in it. And it takes us out of the prison of our own mind and it allows us to go so much more deep in our relationships, isn't it? You know, my my son is 23 now and he's a pretty resilient guy. <laughs> he's, he's got a lovely disposition. He's very into mindfulness, but I just see my own resilience journey as the parent, you know, when he was, let's say, a young teen and, you know, he would want some video game and I wouldn't get it. And, you know, you're the worst parent in the neighborhood or on the face of the earth. And I remember a period of such reactivity. How could he say that? I'm a good parent. I gave you this, this, and this, and now you're coming back, you know, like that humph. And when he was 13, 14-ish, I very intentionally dropped the reactivity. I dropped my story that it was about me. So he'd come at me about, you know, whatever, about school, a bad grade, whatever it is, you didn't get me this. And I'd be like, oh, okay, he's being himself. He's being a teen. I would just let it roll off me. I'd leave the room and I'd come back very rapidly. Hey, you want some ice cream? No, like it was money in the bank to drop that reactivity because not only did he have this reactive parent, but it was really all about me. It wasn't really about him because it was taking me to my own woundedness and my own story about whatever, respect or being a good parent. He didn't really get to be him. So I think that's helped his resilience. He'd probably tell a very different story, but you know, I think that's kind of helped his um sort of sense of groundedness in himself. But what a really wonderful reminder for all of us, and especially those who are parents, and what an incredible perspective you found, which I can only assume came from your own healing journey and your your practice of mindfulness, where we complement. I have one of my pillars is unconditional acceptance, which I'll admit was inspired by... Um, Tara Brock's work, and I know you've you've certifications with her, and her book, Radical Acceptance, and the ability to be able to be with what's happening, and lean in, and say yes, and let go of that resistance, the pushing against. We've all, I'm sure, heard the old adage, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional, and suffering is when you are in a state of resistance to what's happening. So I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more from you about your mindfulness journey and what some of the takeaways have been for you um, around uh, mindfulness and resilience. Yeah, I've been on quite a mindfulness journey because, you know, we think about mindfulness and monks in Tibet on a mountaintop. Some people think of it as a very far away thing, and yet it's so accessible for all of us. And it's just being more aware, being more aware of what's here right now, as opposed to the mind stories about an argument in the past and why did this person do this to me, or the journeys into the future. What's going to happen later today? And what's going to happen with COVID? All of the uncertainty, the things that we don't know what's going to happen. So for me, my mindfulness journey really 
I think about it a lot in terms of my repressed memories because that was out of my awareness. You know, talk about mindlessness, but it was something that my psyche did to protect me. So part of my mindfulness journey has been kind of getting myself back, getting my memories back, becoming a little more whole. And then furthermore, this ability to really observe more what my mind is up to. Our minds are really kind of wacky places. It's amazing what goes on up there. You know, 20,000 to 50,000 thoughts a day, some of them incredibly helpful, but many of them are really bizarre when you, when you stop and look at them. You know, thoughts about ourselves that, again, these self-critical thoughts that there's something not right about me and that everyone can see it, whereas everybody's off in their own head. They're not really focusing on me and my storyline. So mindfulness, to get to know that kind of funny story that I have, that there's something wrong with me that everybody can see. Once I'm aware of that story, wow, I mean, I, I have this agency to decide how I'm going to interact with it. I could pay attention to that storyline and feed it and, and have it get really big, or I could laugh a little bit at it and say, oh, there's my silly mind again, coming up with the story of inadequacy. And, you know, I could just kind of toss it up in the air and kick it to the side in a gentle way because I feel so much better without that story. So that, to me, is the heart of mindfulness, this ability to work with our own mental constructs and have more agency, have more choice about them. It's really the path both to resilience, but also to well-being and happiness. Yes, and couldn't we, in, in becoming aware of those voices or those aspects of ourselves, you might even call them parts, you know, couldn't we send them love rather than, you know, That's being nice. angry with them or making them you know, the saboteurs, you know, like this, this, this horrible aspect of ourselves. You know, I was just visiting with a client prior to our call and we shifted the perspective on, she's like, I think I just have this, this aspect of myself that's, that's, that's the saboteur. And I said, well, consider that even that aspect of yourself has a positive intention, but the behavior that it has you run may not be in, in alignment with what you would like to be doing. So could we send that part of you lots of unconditional love and 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 learn to effectively tame that part of yourself and say yes to that part of yourself, which I see as mindfulness, right? So rather than rejecting, resisting, making that part of me wrong, saying, I see you. Thank you. I appreciate that you're trying to help and we're going to do it differently, you know? than that particular strategy. So, yeah, I think. I, I think, I mean, Tara Brock has been one of my really prime teachers. I had the excellent fortune to be in a direct program with her for two years, she and Jack Cornfield, and they're amazing, really Absolutely. amazing. But this idea of radical acceptance and then the other piece of it is self-compassion, as you're talking about, you know, really kind of literally and figuratively putting our own hand over our heart, it's okay. You're doing the best you can. You're a good person. Really reversing so many of those messages that many of us have internalized. Yeah, all that harsh, you know, inner parenting that we've done of ourselves. You know, whether we had harsh parents or we we became our own critical parents. You know, just kind of starting to reparent that lovely little being inside and saying, you know, I, it's okay. I see you, and and it's okay. So, um, yeah, I just I just I love that. So you were going to read a little passage from the book for us, um, and, and I'd, I'd love it if you could just share that, this excerpt. 
Wonderful. Yes. So it's in the chapter about positivity, and this is a section about challenging negativity. <laughs> Perhaps the most problematic of all negative thought patterns is what's known as the inner critic. We all experience this voice in our heads. It's the one that's busy evaluating us, finding fault, throwing insults at us for our actions and words, saying things like, you're not smart enough. Why did you say that? You'll never amount to anything. Often this inner critic is a mix of critical voices we've heard over the years from parents, teachers, siblings, coaches, internalized and knit together into a painful chorus of personal inadequacy. Over time, the voice becomes so familiar that we even believe it's our own. But voices like this are never true to the unfolding reality of who we are, not for me and not for you. The inner critic's messages are based on selected snapshots and inaccurate ones at that. The inner critic ignores our moments of tenderness, kindness, generosity, and goodwill that are also a part of our days. What a great frame, you know, and thank you so much for reading that as a part of this conversation. Folks, if you haven't checked out this book, order it now. It's just such a gift to the world. I'm so glad to have met you, Dr. Gazelle, Gail, and to know that this book exists. So is it all right if we do these last little uh, rapid fire questions? Yes, go for it. And you've already answered so many uh, <laughs> of them, but we're just going to go through them anyway. You know, and just quick responses, right? Kind of first thing that pops into your mind. But what's, what's one thing, and I know you did more than one thing, but what's, what's the, the, probably the most impactful thing do you think you did to cultivate your inner resilience, if you had to pick one? I would say hands down, self-compassion. Self-compassion. Awesome. Okay, let's see. What is your favorite self-care practice? Walking outside with my beautiful dog. Um, and, and the sustenance of nature and the breeze and the colors and the sky. It's so nurturing. Oh, the elements are so powerful, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Awesome. Love that. Um, who are your three favorite personal development or spiritual teachers? And here's the deal, living or deceased? <laughs> okay. Well, we mentioned one, Tara Brock. So impressive. She just walks the talk beautifully, a generosity of heart and spirit, really just an amazing human being. Pema Chodron, another mindfulness leader. You know, she was a citizen in New Jersey who was struggling and having a lot of difficulties, and she walked on a spiritual path and became a a Buddhist nun. So she's also just a kind, compassionate, loving being. And the third is the Dalai Lama, that lovely impish smile, the love that he has, the, the warmth, the, just the acceptance of life as it is, is quite a role model for me and obviously for many, many others. Oh, three of my favorites as well. Uh, absolutely. Um, okay. And this is, this is kind of just a fun question, but some, something that someone posed to me and I just love it. Um, who is in your power posse? And here's what I mean by that. These are people, again, either living or deceased, uh, spirit guides, angels, deities that you call upon when you're about to go into a challenging situation, whose energies you call upon to be there with you. Again, like you can almost imagine that they're standing behind you like your posse. Um, Who's in your power posse? (laughs) Uh, My mother. 
who died quite some time ago. And I probably wouldn't have said that when she was alive, yeah. but she's really a source of inner sustenance. My inner ally, kind of an imaginary inner, inner ally that um, comes to me. And I would have to say my son. Love that. Those are, those are the three. Awesome. So cool. I always love hearing, you know, what, what people say to that because, you know, it's like, it's such a broad uh, right. response that I get, right? I get everything from like, yeah. I call yeah. upon, you know, the Buddha and Mother <laughs> Teresa and Maya Angelou to my mother and my son, which is just so lovely. Um, what are your, and this is not going to be an easy one. I'm just going to throw it out there, but your top three all-time favorite books Oh gosh, that is really hard. Fiction or nonfiction? Okay. Um, Wise Heart by Jack Kornfield. It's a compendium of Buddhist psychology, but it is just this beautiful book that helps you understand yourself and how you look at the world and feeds you so much goodness along the way. So that's the first. The second would have to be a book of Mary Oliver's poetry, any all of them are so nourishing and just inspiring. And then the third is going to sound really funny. It's a kid's book. It's The Wind in the Willows. Um, I love that book. Oh yeah, I read it as a child. I, I've probably read that book hundreds of times. It just comforts my inner child. I, sometimes when I wake up in the middle of the night and my mind is just yip-yapping about something, I actually just read a little bit of The Wind in the Willows and it, it just calms me. It brings me back. Ah, amazing. Love you. Thank you. Um, and then last question is, what would you, in all your incredible experiences and, and the wisdom you've acquired up till now in your life, tell your younger self? Mm. If you could go back in time, to any moment in time, really, to a critical moment, you know, that you could think of, what would you, in your infinite wisdom at this point, go back and tell your younger self at a, at a critical moment in time? I would tell her how much goodness she has and that she's going to be okay. I would reassure her. It's what every child needs to hear, that they're good. They don't have to take in all the messages, whether it's extreme abuse or not. These internalizations, as, we, as we've talked about, and a sense of hope. You're going to be okay. You're going to get through the difficulties. You're going to come to the other side of this. And I guess the third thing is I'm here with you. You're not alone. Oh, I just love that. I hope all of you who are listening can, can take that and run with it and choose to do that for yourself as well. Gail, it has been such an incredible pleasure. I feel like I could keep talking to you for hours on end yes. about all of the things. And, uh, you know, for the sake of uh, time, uh, we're, we're going to wrap it up. And, and hey, maybe we'll have you come back and do a specific segment on the <laughs> podcast on, on one of, maybe just talk mindfulness for a, whole, for a whole episode. I'd love to have you back. So the book is Everyday Resilience, and people can get it, I assume, on Amazon. Yeah, Everyday Resilience, a practical guide to build inner strength and weather life's challenges. They can get it at their local bookseller, all of the usual places. And if you'd like to download a free chapter, you can go to my site, gailgazelle.com. There'll be a pop-up. Please take, take a dose of this medicine and see for yourself. Awesome. And of course, you can um, find all of uh, Dr. Gazelle's uh, links and channels to her social media in the show notes. So please check those out so that you can 
uh, be able to connect with her and follow her on all those social media channels as well. Thank you so much for your insights, for the incredible gift of this book and for coming on the show and sharing it with our listeners. Thank you, Pega. This has really been a treat. I I hope we get to do it again soon. Thank you all so much, as always, uh, for listening and uh, continuing to support this podcast. As you know, we certainly appreciate you subscribing, sharing the love with anyone that you feel could benefit from this conversation. We will be back with another episode very soon. And for now, this is me wishing you all so much love, light, and aloha. Namaste. I'm Pega Cadcodian. Thank you for listening to Radical Resilience, the podcast. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Be sure to go to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and rate. And remember to share this with all the amazing women in your life. Join us next week for another episode of Radical Resilience, the podcast.